world that we live in, but um, you know, I grew, I'm a Milwaukee native and so Chicago is close to my heart. I spent a year in Chicago actually um, last year at Trinity. And so it was so great to be in the snow and uh, just back in the very familiar Midwest for me. Now I find myself in Florida, sunny Florida, actually, and uh, we're way south in West Palm Beach, and I'm a, a philosophy professor there, and then directing a brand new program that's going to be a master's in philosophy of religion that we're launching in the fall. We're super excited about that. A lot of the things that um, I talk about in the book, we're going to be able to really sort of drill super deep in this philosophy degree on that, whether it's related to culture, art, religion, science, theology, philosophy, um, you know, all of it, literature. And so super excited for that. Um, let's see, married to my wife. That's always a good thing. Um, and uh, we've been married for 25 years and uh, we've got four kids. Two of them, actually all four are here right now. I'm in my house and uh, two of them are in college at Baylor, uh, but they're still here for Christmas break. So we're cherishing this time that seems less and less to have the whole family here. And then we've got two more boys in high school and they are in quarantine right now. So they're actually behind me in their rooms uh, online in school. So we're kind of all hanging out here at home today. But uh, anyway, that's a little bit about me. Uh, I'm going to screen share and then I'm going to uh, kind of walk through a, a PowerPoint, just kind of throw a lot of stuff out for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then would love to, to just have uh, as much time as we can for Q&A. Um, today is the bad news. And then next time we'll have the more prescriptive and hopeful uh, thing here. So let me just uh, scare, share screen. Okay, so um, here's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna just sort of introduce the problem, the problem that cultural apologetics seeks to address. And so basically, I'll just tell you where we're headed, uh, if I get this working. We're going to look at uh, four basic questions <clears throat> today, and the first couple will be pretty brief, or the first one will be brief. But let's just ask the question, why should we actually care about our culture? Why should we care about the world we find ourselves in, the spirit of the age, things like that? Second, we'll just sort of identify the problem. This is where it's going to be a lot of bad news and maybe a little depressing. And then we're going to go to the problem beneath the problem, even more depressing. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little descriptively, because I think it's super helpful to understand how did we arrive at this cultural moment? Because I think really the first thing, if we really want to um, help people see the goodness, the beauty, the truth of the gospel, we've got to sort of understand how we arrived here and what, what, you know, what kind of world we live in. So I'm going to name it for you, and I'm going to try to explain through some metaphors how it feels. Okay, So there's where we're headed. I'm just going to jump right in. Um, let's ask that first question. Okay, so why should we care about culture? Uh, for at least two reasons we should care, and I'm just gonna give you two biblical reasons why we should care. The first is simply because God has called us to understand our times. And I'm thinking of Romans 13, 11, where Paul basically says that, that we are to understand our present time that we find ourselves in. This has been the calling, this has always been the calling of Christ followers in culture. The second one though, is because faithfulness to Christ demands it. And here I'm thinking again of Paul and his last words that he gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. And of course, the question is, well, what is that good, de good deposit? And the answer is the gospel. And so we're, we're charged to guard the gospel. And, you know, I love uh, Tim Keller. He, he talks a lot about uh, defeater beliefs that you find in a culture. And the idea is that every culture has a set of defeater beliefs that set themselves up against Christianity. 
So if we want to assert that Christianity is true, there's a whole bunch of beliefs that people hold, call them defeater beliefs, that if those are true, they defeat our belief. So for example, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster. If that's true, well, that's a defeater belief to Christianity. And that's something that people in our culture hold. And so we need to, we need to learn to address uh, these defeater beliefs because faithfulness demands it. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. It's not just defeater beliefs, as it turns out. It's a whole lot more that we need to address in guarding the, 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 the good deposit that's been entrusted to us. Okay. That's all I want to say just to get us going on why should we care about these things, okay? Faithfulness demands it. It's part of uh, the call to understand our present times. All right, so let's go to the bad news. What is the image problem and how bad is it? Okay, let me just, I'm going to share some statistics, some numbers, some some stats. Uh, I just want you to sort of sit and, and um, think for a little bit about the scope of the problem before us. In terms of sheer numbers, you know, there's this question, how many people are leaving Christianity. Uh, actually, for the Gen Z, uh, our young, right now, it's about a million people per year that are leaving the faith and walking away. And if the trend continues by 2050, the number of religiously unaffiliated in our country will literally double uh, by then. And so the trajectory is very, very discouraging. Let me give you some statistics. Okay, we're gonna, we've got a backdoor problem. People are leaving the church. Just talked about the million, million Gen Zers that are leaving every year. Um, Okay, let me, let's show some statistics. Uh, first of all, Gen Z, uh, as many studies show, are, are less religious. Um, 2018 Barna study of Gen Z folks uh, no, noted that Gen Zers identify as atheists uh, at double the rate of the US adult population. So for Gen Zs, about 13% um, identify as atheists for the general population. For everyone else, it's about 6%. Um, moreover, when they're asked about their views of the church, uh, 27% say that the biggest problem with the church is that it's not a place where we can deal with doubts. It's not a place where I can honestly wrestle with the questions that I have, okay? That's one in four people. Uh, another study, this is even a little scarier, 2019 study uh, noted that 30% of young adults raised in religious traditions are uh, no longer you know, staying Christian. They're leaving their faith. Um, and, and so they're leaving the church. And we could add to that prominent deconversions by celebrity Christians. I don't know if you know this one. This is, uh, Melissa, you might, because this is sort of a little closer to home for us. Uh, Rhett uh, was a former crew staff. These are, these are people like us, right, that have ministered for years, uh, of, you know, sharing the gospel to college students in this case. Um, but just last year in 2019, Rhett and Link, who are incredibly influential, uh, 16 million YouTube followers. They're funny, they're witty, they've got a huge following. Uh, but on their Ear Biscuit podcast, they both announced that they had left their faith. And if you listen to it, a lot of the reasons were confusions about the role of certainty and doubt in our faith. Plus, it just didn't like a whole bunch of the Christian ethic when it comes to sexuality, gender, uh, marriage, and things like that. And so they left the faith and have a huge influence on especially uh, our, our young culture. Uh, we could go on. You might Maybe you know this name. This is uh, um, uh, you know, the, the former you know, pastor and best-selling author, Josh Harris. Maybe you remember the book. I don't know how old you are. I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It was kind of all the rage 20 years ago. Um, yeah, but sadly, last year, he too announced on uh, social media that he was basically divorcing his wife and leaving his faith. That he no longer believed uh, in this thing that he's been, you know, proclaiming and leading for all these years. Here's another one. This is Marty Sampson. This is uh, 
uh, one of the leaders of Hillsong Music for years, one of the, the main worship leaders, again, last year in social media announcing that he no longer believes that Christianity is true. And a lot of that is because he says, there's no answers to my questions. And the scary thing is you could just pick up any basic book in apologetics and the answers are there, right? And so it's kind of odd that, that there's these claim that there's no answers to these deep questions. Okay, so we have a backdoor problem. We don't just have a backdoor problem. I want to ask if I could see you. I'd be asking how you're feeling now. We have a front door problem too. Um, and here's the front door problem. Christians are rarely sharing their faith. Increasingly, we don't even think it's our responsibility to share our faith. And even worse, increasingly, we think it's actually morally wrong to try to assert our view as the truth in, in the goal of converting others. So again, let me share some statistics from Barnum. 1993. 89% of the Christians who had shared their faith agreed that it was the responsibility of every Christian. In 2018, only 64%. So we have a 25% drop in, the, in, in a Christians thinking it's their responsibility to actually share the faith. Uh, almost half of millennials agree that it's somewhat wrong to try to push your faith on someone else. All right. Again, if I could see you, I'd ask, what's the Great Commission? Um, but the Great Commission is that, that piece uh, at the end of Matthew 28, for example, where Jesus basically commissions the disciples to go and make disciples uh, you know, of all the nations around the world and to baptize uh, everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's kind of this call to live this missional life. Uh, but when you pull the church today, here's what we find. Almost half, 50, well, more than half, 51% of U.S. churchgoers don't even know what the term the Great Commission means. Almost half, one out of two. One in four, another 25% say, well, it kind of rings a bell, but I don't remember what it is. 6% simply are not sure if they've ever even heard the phrase, the Great Commission. And then there's the 17% that do know. And so only 17% of Christians know Jesus's last words, which arguably when someone's departing, these are very important words, you know, the Great Commission. Only 17% even know what it is, okay? So we have a front door problem. We're not sharing our faith. We don't think it's our responsibility to share our faith. And we even think that it's morally wrong to share our faith. Okay, we, go on, we have to go on though. Um, oh, uh, consider this, this is a, a 2015 essay uh, written in the New York Times called Googling for God. So this is about five years ago now, <laughs> but I, I think that the trajectory is even worse <laughs> than it was then. But here we have uh, this author. Let me just, you can see this. So look at the first two paragraphs. It has been a bad decade for God. So he's looking at the first five years. Despite the rising popularity of Pope Francis, who was elected in 2013, Google searches for churches are down 15% lower in the first half of this decade than they were the last half of the previous one. Searches questioning God's existence are up. Many behaviors that, supposedly abhor, that, that he supposedly abhors have skyrocketed. Porn searches are up 83%. For heroin, it's 70, 32%. How are the Ten Commandments doing? Well, not well. Love thy neighbor is the most common search with the word neighbor in it, but right behind it is neighbor porn. The top Google search, including the word God, is God of War, which is a video game. And the last line that you can't see there says, with over 700,000 searches per year. And so this was five years ago. The trajectory undoubtedly has surely continued in this way, where people, um, 
question God. Uh, they don't like the kinds of things that Christians stand for. And, uh, you know, we're just, we have an image problem. All right, it goes on. Again, sorry, this is the bad news today. We also have a house that's in disarray. We have a, what I would call a fragmentation problem. So the house is a, is a mess. And none of this is a surprise to us, right? I mean, we're politically fragmented. I mean, you know, just go watch the news right now. Um, we're racially fragmented. We're intellectually fragmented. We're moral, morally fragmented, economically, socially fragmented. Um, think about the intellectual fragmentation. Anti-intellectualism is a huge problem in the church today. Um, the church largely doesn't know what apologetics is, or if they do, they have an unfavorable view of it. Um, we have a very weak theology. Uh, we are entertaining ourselves and our children to death. Um, you know, statistics on hours watched streaming TV versus hours in the Bible are incredibly out, out of balance. Uh, Barner has done a study of the number of Bibles per U.S. home versus the interaction with the Bible. And of course, the number's high. The interaction is very low. And so we have uh, a wisdom problem. And that matters, right? I think we're seeing that played out in all of these spheres. You know, I'm always struck with, and you can just write this down and go look at it later, but uh, look, at, look at Proverbs 26, verse 4. Um, and it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. But then look up Proverbs 26, verse 5, the next verse. And it says, answer a fool according to his folly. And you're like, well, what's going on here? You know, within the, the breath of two sentences, the, the, this proverb is telling us to not answer and to answer a fool according to his folly. And the point is about wisdom, right? That living in this culture is going to require Christian wisdom and discernment. And of course, the Christian virtue of wisdom is the ability to understand reality and live our life according to its grain. And that's what we're missing here. And so we're fragmented. Morally, um, my, I'm deeply burdened and, and saddened by Robbie Zacharias, someone in my own sphere who is a probably one of the most influential apologists of the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, who now that he's passed away, um, all, these, all this information is coming out about how he was basically a sexual predator and, and more. And so in sum, I guess this is probably enough, right? <laughs> Not what you wanted to get for lunch uh, is all this bad news. But in sum, we have an image problem. Uh, Christians, by and large, have no longer uh, understand the relevancy of Jesus to all aspects of life. We're largely anti-intellectual. And so nobody wants to hear from us. They don't care what we have to say. And as a result, the Christian voice has become muted. Okay, But it's not just the Christian voice that has become muted. Uh, when you think about it, historically, the church is called to be, to play a prophetic role in culture, right? We're to be the salt and uh, salt in, in a decaying culture or light on a hill. But because of our fragmented nature, the fact that we're just as fragmented as our non-believing neighbors, um, because of the fact that we read of Christian leaders disqualifying themselves from ministry weekly, uh, the Christian conscience has become muted as well. And so no one wants to hear about our values. But it's not just that, and this is actually probably the surprising thing, is that Christians pretty much view the world the same way everyone else does, right? We use words like the world is mundane, the world is ordinary, the world is everyday. But here's the thing, that's not the way the world is, right? The world, properly speaking, is enchanted. It's magical, it's mysterious, it's beautiful to use the proper word, it's gift. It's sacred, it's holy, right? And so as a result, 
we no longer see the world in its proper light. And so the Christian imagination has become muted as well. So if you add all of this up, all of this bad news, here's the result. Christianity and culture is no longer viewed as plausible or desirable or both. It's, you know, so, so this is the issue before us. How can we show that Christianity is both true to the way the world is, that's the reasonable part, but also true to the way the world ought to be. And that's the beauty and goodness part, that it satisfies the deep longings of the heart, okay? So we've, uh, so what have I done so far? We've talked a little bit um, about why, why we should care about culture. We've talked a little bit about the problem. Let me just now drill a little deeper and talk about the problem beneath the problem, because I think this is important to understand. Let me check my watch. Okay, so the problem beneath the problem, we, we, to, to understand that, we're going to uh, go to Leslie Newbegin. I'm excited that you're going to have the opportunity for Joel next week to talk in depth. But uh, Leslie Newbegin, if you don't know the name, uh, he was sent by Great, uh, I'm sorry, sent from Great Britain to India in the 1930s uh, to minister amongst the Hindus, and he did so faithfully for 40 plus years. He returns back to his sending country in 1970s, only to find at the time in, in the, the years that he was away that his, that his own sending country had become, in his words, post-Christian. And so he began to wrestle with the question, how can I have a missionary encounter with this very culture that I find myself in Great Britain, this post-Christian culture? And he wrote this wonderful book called The Foolishness to the Greeks. And in that question, he asked what I think is the crucial question in a post-Christian age. And it's right there on the screen. It's from page one of that book. You know, what would be involved in a missionary encounter between the gospel and the whole way of perceiving, thinking, and living that we call modern Western culture? I think this is a great question. Now, I think this is actually uh, the penultimate question. It's not the ultimate question, right? The ultimate question that we want to ask every person is, what do you make of Jesus Christ? That's the question we want every person to consider. But, but Newbegin understood that the gospel is never proclaimed in a vacuum and that there's this cultural mindset and that there's, there's cultural imagination and this cultural value system that informs whether that gospel will be seen as plausible or implausible, desirable or undesirable, right? And so we've got to ask Newbegin's question. And so I'm gonna do that briefly because uh, I'm seeing I'm running out of time. And let's ask this question. So notice what he says here. Um, how can we have a genuine, genuine missionary encounter between the gospel and the whole way of perceiving, thinking, and living? Let's focus on those three words to understand the problem beneath the problem, okay? So let's consider our own Athens, okay? Namely, Western culture, the, the world we find ourselves in. What is our dominant way of perceiving in our Athens, whether it's Chicago, West Palm Beach, you know, wherever you are here in the West. Well, in one word, it would be this word disenchantment, okay? This is the dominant way of perceiving. And the idea here is that the world is no longer seen in its proper light, right? Um, instead of seeing the world as sacred or beautiful or mysterious or gift, we see it as mundane, ordinary, uh, you know, every day. And so as a culture, we're literally under a spell taking for granted life and goodness and beauty uh, and the holy instead of seeing them as a gift, okay? So this is a dominant way of perceiving. We can talk about that. That's important. Next question for Newbegin, what is the dominant way of um, uh, thinking? Well, in a word, it would be sensate. Sensate. Uh, we're fixed on the physical, the sensory, the material. If you've read any C.S. Lewis, go to, the, go to the screw tape letters and think of his first letter from the senior devil to the junior devil, you know, giving his devilish advice. 
And he says, your job, senior devil or junior devil, is to fix the patient, that is the, the patient that they're trying to keep from becoming a Christian, fix their mind, and this is what he says, on the stream of sensual experience. Because in doing that, you won't awaken their rational faculties and they'll never pertain to universal matters. Uh, and, and so that I think describes our culture. We're fixed on the stream of sensual experience. Our thinking is very sensory very materialistic, right? And we pay, pay little attention, therefore, to universal matters. Third, what is the dominant way of living in our culture? And in a word, maybe surprise, not surprise, surprise, it's hedonism. You know, we go from one bite-sized packet of pleasure to another bite-sized packet of pleasure. And again, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, we have become a culture addicted to Turkish delights. And if you remember from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund you know, he tasted this thing, and I, I don't know if you've tasted them. They're not that great, but Lewis must have liked them. But, you know, the minute he had one, that's all he wanted. Now, for Lewis, a Turkish delight, and of course, Lewis is brilliant in his fiction. We're going to talk about story in a couple of weeks. Um, what is a Turkish delight? Well, it's something that gives an immediate sensual payoff, but ultimately ends up enslaving you. That's hedonism, and that's our culture. We are addicted to Turkish delights. So if you wrap all this up, what is the problem beneath the problem? Why do we have all these problems in the church, the back door, the front door, and the, the fragmentation problem? Well, in a word, it's going to be uh, secularism, or what I would prefer, um, disenchantment, that we live in a disenchanted age, that we live in a secular age, okay? So what is the secular age? What is the disenchanted age that we find ourselves in? Well, it's this secular three here, this third sense of the word secular that you see on your screen. We live today in an age unlike any age before our own, right? If you go back 500 years, unbelief was really hard, and nobody contested your belief in God. Today, it's the exact opposite. Unbelief is possible, and belief for Christians is difficult. Why? Because we no longer know how to see the world in its proper light, that we live in a disenchanted or a secular age. And I'm going to use th those two words interchangeably, but by secular, I mean this third sense. This is from Charles Taylor, if you want more, we can talk about that. But we live in a secular or a disenchanted age. Okay, I'm going to go quick because I, I, I do want to have time here. Um, how did we get here? How did we arrive at this? And then I want to end with a, a little more description. Um, Here's how we got here. And I'm going to just, I want you to think of Romans chapter one. Okay. I'm going to give you a spiritual account. In the book, uh, I give a kind of philosophical story of how we got here and ideas do matter. But here, I'm just going to give you a, a brief spiritual account of how we arrived here, right? Because if the idea is that God has created this enchanted world, this God-bathed gift, sacramental universe, how do we get to this world where we no longer see it as such, right? And I think it, it's basically two steps, and these, think again of Romans 1. It begins by suppressing the truth about God. This is the first step toward disenchantment. Why? Well, for three reasons. Because we're shaped by what we think great. We run to that which we think will satisfy. And um, oh wait, I'm, let me say that again. We're moved to that and we're moved to that by that which we think lovely. Okay. So we suppress the truth about God, and if you follow Romans 1, what happens then is we become futile in our thinking, darkened in our heart, and we become foolish idolaters. Um, theologians, I'm thinking of uh, Norman Wurzba at Duke University, he talks about an, uh, a disenchanted or idolatrous way of perceiving the world, where God ceases to become the, the lens that we see the world through, and we just see the world, the world um, through the lens of 
And that's actually an idolatrous way of perceiving. And that's where we find ourselves. I'm always struck with A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, the very first sentence. He says, the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think about God. And then he says, if we get that wrong, everything else goes downhill from there. N.T. Wright says, as he thinks of Romans 1 and suppressing the truth about God, he says, at this moment, the world becomes out of joint. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the whole world is turned upside down, right? But this is the first step toward disenchantment. Now, the second step that happens pretty quick on the heels of that is what I'll call, following C.S. Lewis, the emptying of the world. And think of it this way. Imagine that you were uh, living in the ancient times. Go back to the Greek era, you know, like the, the age of Homer or something like that. Um, and if you think about the ancient person and their experience of the world, they inhabited a vastly different world than we do today, right? So the ancient world was populated with gods and goddesses and nymphs and dryads and monsters and spirits and laws and lawgivers. Um, it was not tame. It was not dull. You know, it, it, life was an adventure. The world was supernatural. Uh, at any moment, you might be in the presence of a god, maybe a river god or a tree god or whatever, but divine judgment was a constant worry. So the human experience for the ancient person was one of mystery and enchantment and sacredness. Now contrast that today with the modern person's experience of the world. The world has been emptied of, her, of the divine. It's been emptied of the transcendent. It's been emptied of the magical. And as a result, our experience of the world is diminished. And so here's a great quote from Lewis. This is by, uh, in a little essay called The Empty Universe. He says, at the outset, the universe appears packed with will, intelligence, life, and positive qualities. Every tree is a nymph and every planet a god. Man himself is akin to the gods. The advance of knowledge gradually empties this rich and genial universe, first of its gods, then of its colors, smells, sounds, and tastes, finally of solidity itself as solidity was originally imagined. And we could go on from there. Uh, not only has the world been emptied of the divine, but space is conceived, conceived now as vast, empty, silent space and time is devoid of meaning. And we're told that the earth is just a, a, a remote outpost in the middle of a mediocre galaxy of 100 billion stars amongst 100 billion other galaxies, you know, and so uh, we're basically insignificant uh, in that way as well. And so what happens though, is the world has been emptied of her transcendence and we result in this disenchanted world that we find ourselves in, okay? So this is kind of the bad news side today. Again, hang with us. We'll get to the good, the prescriptive, hopeful side. But I think we have to start here. Um, I, I wanna wrap up. And so let me just give you um, four metaphors to think about this. And I'm just gonna be very brief and I can come back. Let me give us, how, how does it, what does it feel like to live in a disenchanted world. Let me give you four metaphors to begin to understand what it feels like. The first is what's called the broken cord. And again, maybe I'll just point you to um, my book where I talk about this one at least, and I don't talk about all these. Um, I think this will help. You know, for every culture, except for this one, according to the Jewish sociologist, Philip Reef, he says, um, there's a tight connection between the sacred order and the natural order. He says, only this culture, the one you find yourself in now is the only one where there's been this severing of the sacred from the social order or the natural world, okay? So we live in a broken cord. So as Philip Reef, this Jewish sociologist says, um, now what you have in culture is just a warring series of fragments. There's no unifying thread that unites us or our culture. Okay, so that's the first metaphor. Second metaphor, this one comes from Charles Taylor. 
an important uh, Catholic philosopher. Um, this is the idea of a dungeon. And this is, I think, helps us understand what it feels like to live in a disenchanted world, right? There's the felt absence of God. Charles Taylor talks about how we live in the imminent frame. There's nothing beyond this world. There's nothing transcendent. And so what happens, though, is we seal our, ourselves off from significance then, and we've been cast, as Nietzsche would say, on a vast sea of nothing. So we find ourselves in this world, and this world is just a dungeon. There's nothing beyond it. There's nothing transcendent. That's another metaphor. Third metaphor comes from Jamie K.A. Smith. He's got a great trilogy of books called the Cultural Liturgy Series, but one of the things I appreciate about his work is he reminds us that we are desiring animals, that we're not merely rational animals, we are that, but we're more than that. And he talks about how um, the rituals and the liturgies and the things we consume shape us, and they shape us in ways that are not neutral. And today we are told that we shop, therefore we are, and that we consume because everything in a disenchanted world becomes commoditized even people, right? So we traffic people just as much as we traffic things today. And so the shopping mall, I think, although, you know, in a COVID world and an internet world, the shopping mall is becoming less and less important, but the idea that we're consuming, uh, you know, commoditizing everything and that we're driven by our desires. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And then lastly, last metaphor is we live in now in a disenchanted world. We're told that we can choose our own adventure right? Pick your story. Um, Tim Keller in his book on preaching talks about five baseline narratives. I won't talk them over, but you can look at his book and his chapter on modern uh, baseline narratives. But the idea there is that, as Keller puts it, the dominant theme of the disenchanted age is, he calls it um, individualistic autonomy, or the sovereign self, and that we're, we can just choose our own adventure. We, we can write our own script. We can seek authenticity and, and follow our heart. Right? And these are the kind of cultural scripts um, that we're told. There's no story that's true to the way the world is. There's no overarching story that we need to locate our lives in. There's no story that's alive and that understands you. Right? That's kind of the idea here. Okay. I went really fast because I wanted to have some time. I'm sorry. I also get excited. Uh, when I get excited, I also talk fast. But the good news is coming. I think there is a way that we can engage these things, Lord willing, with the help of God and each other in the church. Uh, and we'll begin to talk about that in two weeks. Uh, next week, we'll have a, a little break here, and Joel will talk a little bit more about New Begin as well. So that's all I want to say. I'm going to unshare it, uh, but I would love to have some Q&A time. Let me stop sharing. Great. Gosh, Paul, thank you so much. Um, I think that we should all get credit in your, you know, one of your philosophy classes by by coming uh, each, each week here in January. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, really appreciate you unpacking this for us. I think it's... Um, it is discouraging in a way, but uh, but it's so helpful for us again, as you said, to understand the times. Um, and then and then I look forward to the next couple of weeks where we'll get into a little bit more. We have had a couple of questions come in, and uh, if you if you guys have any more, um, feel free to to put them in the chat to me, um, or yeah, if you want to interact uh, in in the chat, um, happy to to take some questions, but. Um, Paul, a couple that have come in. Uh, one asked just a little bit more about the um, the terms that you use of enchanted and disenchanted, and maybe just share a little bit more about how Christians should see the world and sort of why that that language. Okay, that's a great question. Um, I um, I stumbled on that language uh, because I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, 
And this is the language that they use to describe the world. And in fact, um, there's an essay by C.S. Lewis that's really not known. It's called Talking About Bicycles that for me, I think unpacks all of Lewis. And let me just tell you about it because it relates to the question. In there, he uses the bicycle to pretty much explain um, our posture towards everything in the world. And he basically says that we go through four stages with respect to the bicycle. Um, he says, when you're an infant, you know, the, 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 the bicycle along with everything else in the world means nothing to you. And he calls that the unenchanted stage. So there's that word coming in, enchantment. And then he says, you know, imagine that moment. And I'm thinking of my own kids as I'm reading his essay. You know, the moment when the training wheels come off, you're running next to your kid and they, you push that bike and they, they run, they go. They don't fall and they're riding for the first time. And it's kind of like, you know, everything is as it ought to be. And you experience joy and happiness and there's a newfound freedom. And Lewis calls this the second stage. This is enchantment. But then he says pretty quickly that we all go to the third stage with respect to that bike. And if you were like me who rode your bike everywhere as a kid, you got there quickly, um, where the bike becomes drudgery, it becomes work and you, you don't find joy in it anymore. He says, this is the third stage. This is that disenchanted stage. Um, but he says this, he says, most of us in culture stay in this third stage with respect to everything, but we've got to press on toward the fourth stage, which is re-enchantment. And for him, this is what Lewis meant, re-enchantment was learning to see the bike as gift and to enjoy it in creaturely response, okay? So when I talk about, so why I use the word of enchantment and disenchantment, um, I think for a couple reasons. One, I think it speaks to the, the kind of uh, deep mysterious beauty, sacredness, this return to a sacramental view of the world that I think is really important. Um, number two, it has currency, I think in people who have eyes to see like Lewis and Tolkien because the more that I uh, researched for the book, what I realized is that this was the dominant way of viewing the world. Augustine, um, Aquinas, Anselm, all these people viewed the world as an ongoing story. And so when I mean enchantment and disenchantment and re-enchantment, here's what I mean. And this is what I'll argue for next time that we need to join with God and each other to re-enchant the world. I mean, two things. Number one, that we would see and delight in the world the same way Jesus does. Number two, we would invite others to do the same. That's all I mean by re-enchantment. So it's about perception, but it's not just perception. There's the scene part. It's also about our emotion. It's about delighting because these are importantly connected and we can talk about that. Um, so that's a little bit of, of why, but it's trying to recapture the dominant view of the world for the first 1500 years of the church. The language that's typically used in theology circles is a sacramental view of the world. And I'm using a different word to get at the same kind of thing that all is gift, all is created by God and we're to enjoy it in creaturely response. That's great, that's helpful, thanks. Uh, Paul, another question I think that um, that could get into a really long history, but maybe if you have a, a brief um, thoughts on this uh, along the same lines is, is just that, that Paul wrote Romans to a culture that was still enchanted. And so why did our culture suppression of truth result in disenchantment, would you say? What are the connections that you would make sort of historically there? Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so I do say a little bit more in the book about that. So that that could be an easy punt is go look there. But I do think, um, I think there are a few key ideas that took place in the high middle ages that led to where we are. So now we live on the other side of what philosophers or others would call the, the enlightenment. Um, and some of those ideas have to do with um, a debate, yeah, I just don't know, a, a debate about how we view the world. So um, 
we used to view the world as more uh, of a, uh, a divine scale of a hierarchy of being where you have God at the top and then angels and humans and animals and plants and then not, not and inanimate objects. And so there's a hierarchy and it was structured and, and it was, you know, everything participated in God and, and there was teleology, all these fancy words. Um, and, and, but then through the modern era, you began to have a different conception of the world, and this is rooted in philosophy and science, uh, but you basically began to view the world as a great big mechanism of atoms moving in a push-pull way in the void. And so you lose things like teleology, this is the idea that there's purpose or essences or natures, you lose the idea that we're headed towards some divine end you know, and, and things like that. And so it, as you kind of walk through um, the enlightenment, we begin to conceive of the world as a clock or as a mechanism, and then it begins to empty itself of all those sort of transcendent things, because then eventually God becomes a deistic God. And then we're told that science no longer needs God. And so he's gone, he just have the mechanism. And, you know, that's kind of how it ended up. So yeah, longer story. I know I didn't do justice to it. Um, that's, that's helpful. There's a lot for sure to unpack there. And somebody had asked, um, I think it is helpful. Uh, um, you mentioned uh, Our Secular Age um, by Charles Taylor. Somebody wanted to make sure that that was the book you're referencing, which is another thick uh, but rich uh, explanation um, of a lot of a lot of this. So great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are definitely more um, questions coming in that I think are helpful. Um, one is uh, at the very beginning, you spoke about the idea of defeater beliefs. Um, you say anything more about that maybe how we identify those uh you know as we start to think and there's some more questions here on the idea of how we engage uh, with coworkers or with the culture so maybe um, maybe talk a little bit more about that yeah so for keller this is from keller he, he's um not super explicit in his book reason for god but you see it embedded in his introduction there but he's got a um he's got an article or a blog like an article online somewhere where he talks more explicitly about defeater beliefs so you can google tim keller defeater beliefs and find it but basically, and the idea is that defeater beliefs are culturally relative. Um, you know, in middle America or the big cities like Chicago or West Palm, which is not a big city, but it's one of the most post-Christian cities in the country um, or secular, whatever. Um, you know, there's a, a whole set of defeater beliefs here that might be different than like the Middle East, right? There, you're going to have a different set of objections to Christianity. So here, here in our context, it might be that you claim that Christianity is the only true religion, you know, and that's, that's intolerant. Well, in the Middle East, that, you know, that wouldn't be a defeater belief. It would just be you're false or something. Um, and so defeater beliefs, think of, you know, all the propositions you hold is true. Christianity, God exists. Jesus is God. You know, Jesus rose from the dead. A defeater belief would be something that, if true, defeats these other beliefs that you hold. And so basically just think of them as objections coming from people in your culture that, if true, render your faith false or at least, un, or, and or undesirable. Um, and so that's what it is. And so I think that part of our job as cultural apologists is to identify those defeater beliefs um, and then address them. So in the book, I identify what I call three internal barriers to belief and then four external barriers to belief, kind of my best guess at the four, four or five pro most prominent defeater beliefs. Um, and so the internal barriers, things that we need to get ready, get, get work on in our own the church are anti-intellectualism, fragmentation, and this unbaptized imagination. But in terms of the external stuff, the stuff coming from culture that, that um, these kind of defeater beliefs, uh, I addressed, um, if I can remember here, uh, the, the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster. You know, the problem of evil, how is evil consistent with the holy good God? 
Um, is Jesus really the only way? Isn't that intolerant? And uh, I think just the question, does God exist? So those are some big defeater beliefs in culture today. That's good. There's some questions here that um, I know are things that we're going to get to as we go on, but I, I want to make sure to acknowledge them for sure. Um, some of these questions have to do with uh, what I know you talk about as sort of the local and global uh, way that a, um, a Christian or, or someone kind of in this cultural apologetic uh, is thinking. So, so somebody asked, you know, is our end goal just a populist sort of go to the individual of the gospel or is it an effort to try and change culture a little bit of both? And I know you address that. I don't know if you're gonna do that more but maybe just a, a word to that. Great question. Um, yeah, I think that we've got to, you know, there's this book by James Davidson Hunter called To Change the World, which I think is a super important book um, with this question, you know, the Christian impulse to change the world. And he basically goes, he, he's a sociologist from the University of Virginia, a really important uh, scholar, but he basically says Christians are going about world change all wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, great. Um, and in the way that we're going about it all wrong, he says, is that the common view is that if you, if you change enough individual lives, you'll eventually bottom up, you'll change culture, you know, get enough people on your side, culture changes. He argues and persuasively that culture almost never changes that way. It's always top down that we see culture change. You know, you go to the culture shaping institutions and those are the people that get to tell you what to think about reality. So yeah, you referenced in the book, um, how I'm viewing cultural apologetics, there's a global component and a local component. Globally, we want to engage the culture shaping institutes of the world. And with respect to truth, that would be the university. With respect to beauty, that would be the arts. With respect to goodness, that would be the city, uh, actually a whole kind of the city, uh, business, politics, that whole thing. Uh, but I, I think city is probably the, the good way to do that. Um, and we want, to, we want to engage so that Christianity will be seen as plausible and desirable. Um, but of course, the, the gospel also operates at the level of individuals. And that's why we ought to have, you know, care about individuals and how they're consuming culture and how we engage people there. So no, are we, um, will we change the world? I don't know. I think what I'm after though, is can we help show that Christianity is plausible and, and desirable? reasonable and desirable? Yes. And we ought to. If, if, if we're to pay attention to the soil, at least we can trust God to join together and with the Holy Spirit and each other to do, you know, to do our best to do that. You know, God's the one that's going to, whatever, whatever we mean by change the world, that's, that's just not the kind of thing we're able to do. But can we work to re-enchant it in this way that I'll propose next time? Uh, I hope so. I'm going to give you reasons why I have some hope too. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, I really loved uh, when I was reading your book, because I was like, wow, this is exactly the way that we've talked about it in, in some of our different uh, discussions on, on culture uh, that you, you referenced uh, Hunter um, mm -hmm. and the top down idea, but you also reference um, Andy Crouch and the idea of, of making culture and that we do that in our in the spheres that, that God has given us as well. So there's sort of the, the hopeful um, aspect of, of what the individual can do, uh, as well as sort of from an institution. Um, perspective yeah, yeah. too. Somebody had asked a question. I don't know if you want to address this now, um, but uh, about maybe any example that you see of someone using their vocation in the reenchantment of those around them, like what what that looks like. And again, that might be more what we're going to get to as we go along. Um, but if you have any thoughts off the top of your head, because um, I think that's where we're going. And even as we connect this with Faith and Work Chicago, and, and why we're having these conversations, is that we believe that that is that's what we're called to do and that we want to do. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm actually super encouraged. I do, well, not super encouraged because I see a lot of the problem too, but um, I'm encouraged that there's pockets of growth and renaissance and hope. Um, I think we see it most prevalently right now in the arts community um, where there's a lot of people that are waking up to the fact that, wait a minute, first of all, beauty finds its source in Christ. Um, you know, God is a divine artist, created us in his image to be artists, sub-creators, as Tolkien would put it. And so we're seeing a lot of um, a reaffirmation of Christians in the arts. I think of uh, Mikado Fujimura at the Bren Center at Fuller. He's a painter, really important painter. I think of David Taylor, who also is at Fuller now, but a pastor who um, is talking to getting uh, the arts back into the church. Um, and, and just, you know, people like Marilyn Robinson that are helping us to see the sacramental view of the world in their literature and things like that. So I see, and even like an Andrew Peterson and his, um, you know, my kids, their younger son just read the, um, Wingfellow saga. If you have, you know, kind of young teens, uh, which is kind of a Narnia-esque kind of imaginative thing. So I think the rabbit room and all, all those guys are doing some great work. So in the art community, super encouraged, uh, with what's happening, um, in the university, it's tough where I live. Um, I think we see a renaissance in Christian philosophy, but even there, uh, it's, it's difficult. Um, and so we have pockets of, of, of faculty that are embracing this kind of missional, missional life, um, but it's tough. And, and, I, and I don't know a lot about your faith, you know, like the, the domain of the city, but I'm also very hopeful there that I think, you know, this faith and work uh, movement is, which you guys would know more than me, is something that people are really grabbing onto in this idea of flourishing for the sake of the, uh, the city. Um, so I see, I see encouragement in all the pockets that I think are the right pockets. It's just would Lord, the Lord, you know, increase our tribe. Yeah. Amen. I think that's a good uh, maybe note to end uh, this time on, even though I know that there were some more questions. Thank you for submitting those. And I think hopefully if you would uh, be up for sticking with us these next couple of weeks, um, we'll, we'll get to tie some of these things together and hear what, um, what the proposal, uh, the hope for our prayer in, in, uh, in this re-enchantment um, and seeing, uh, as Paul has been saying, that the truth of the gospel is, is, well, the gospel is true and good and beautiful. Um, I'm really excited to, to continue this discussion series. So, Paul, thank you so much uh, for getting us started today. I think this has been a really great start. And uh, like I said, I hope you'll, you'll continue with us. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, I enjoyed the book. We've been referencing uh, Paul's book. This isn't uh, you know, a, a way to, to up his book sales at all, but it, I think it's helpful in this conversation. So we are excited that Zondervan is offering it um, to this group uh, if you registered for the whole month. Uh, so just in the month of January, you can get it 40% off. Um, if you registered before today, hopefully you saw an email with that code. If you just registered um, prior to this, I'll, I'll, there'll be a follow-up email. I might actually include some of the resources that Paul mentioned, some of the books um, that, other, that he uh, referenced as well. Um, uh, I think are, are really helpful if you're interested in, in looking at this more. Um, as, as was mentioned too, next week, Paul actually had a prior commitment, um, but we are excited that Pastor Joel Miles from Holy Trinity Church is going to be sharing with us. It, it even got referenced already that he is working on being a Newbegin scholar, uh, getting his PhD at Wheaton um, connected to that. So he's going to continue this look into apologetics um, and some of the view uh, that Newbegin actually takes on, on uh, the church or the congregation um, as, as an apologetic um, for the good and true and beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so he's going to 
uh, talk about that with us next week. And uh, we hope that, like I said, you'll come back uh, next week and, and then the following uh, Wednesdays in January and join us. So thank you so much for taking your lunch hour. Thank you so much to Paul. And we will look forward to seeing you soon. Have a great everyone. rest of your Wednesday.